open up our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 31, and the reading will begin in verse number 1. There's Isaiah chapter 31, with the reading beginning in verse number 1. The Word of God reads, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help, and stay on horses, and trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. Yet he also is wise, and will bring evil, and will not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers, and against the help of them that work iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men, and not God, and their horses flesh, and not spirit. When the Lord shall stretch out his hand, both he that helpeth shall fall, and he that is hoping shall fall down, and they all shall fail together. For thus hath the Lord spoken unto me, Like as the lion and the young lion roar out his prey, when a multitude of shepherds is called forth against him, he will not be afraid of their voice, nor abase himself for the noise of them. So shall the Lord of hosts come down to fight for Mount Zion and for the hill thereof. As birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem, defending also he will deliver it, and passing over, he will preserve it. Turn ye unto him, from whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. For in that day every man shall cast away his idols of silver, his idols of gold, which your own hands have made unto you for a sin. Then shall the Assyrian fall with the sword, not of a mighty man, and the sword not of a mean man shall devour him. But he shall flee from the sword, his young men shall be discomfited, and he shall pass over to his stronghold for fear, and his princes shall be afraid of the ensign, saith the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, and his furnace in Jerusalem. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank thee for thy great word, Lord, which speaks us this truth, that indeed, Lord, you are a consuming fire, Lord, that there is no equivocation before a God who is holy. And the Lord, we together might seek thy face, Lord God, seek thee and turn unto thee from our sins to the Redeemer of our souls, our Lord Jesus, who died once for all, for all the sins of his people, that we might in him today have peace, joy, and life eternal. I pray, Father, for this church, and thank you, God, for the church in Cloverdale, and I pray, Lord, for all the comings and goings of this church, and specifically for the call that's gone out to this man, Mr. Fitt. We pray, Lord God, thy hand and thy will over the entire proceedings, from beginning to end, Lord, that you would produce the right fruit at the right time, with the right intention, Lord God, that there might be glory to glory to thy name through Mr. Fitton's ministry, Lord, whether it be in Cloverdale, whether it be elsewhere, Lord God, but we pray and ask that you put it on his heart on his mind to come and to serve this people, Lord God, to come and be your under-shepherd in this place, that, Lord God, you might be glorified in him, that he might be a gospel preacher who changes not only the hearts and lives of those in the church, but the community around them, and the whole province of British Columbia, and even the whole world itself. We believe, Lord God, you're able to do exceedingly abundant above all that we ask or think, for you are God, and there is no other. What is impossible for God? We know the answer is nothing, and if if, if the whole world should be against us, we have Christ. So we pray, Lord God, for the furthering of this ministry, 
for its maintenance and sustenance by thy hand, for you've promised, Lord, your sure promise, that you will build your church, and not even the gates of Hades will prevail against it. So we lift all these requests up to thee, Lord God. Pray you bless the preaching of thy word, that it might be thy word speaking and not me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I want to thank you all again for the blessing it is to be amongst you today and to be able to bring to you God's word. Uh, it is difficult not seeing your faces and not fellowshipping with you, so I pray that soon my wife and I and my daughter might be able to come visit you guys in due time. Uh, because you're always on our hearts and always in our prayers. And we're very thankful to hear of the good news of Mr. Fitton. And we're praying that the Lord will continue that for you all. Uh, that being said, uh, today's message is a bit of a difficult one, I would imagine, for many of us. Because it deals with the notion of trusting in the world versus trusting in God. And we live in a society today that trusts in everything but God, it would seem. A couple of facts to maybe open up your mind a bit about this. Today, according to the statistics from last year, 30% of Canadians smoke marijuana. 3.8 million of Canadians regularly smoke cigarettes. 35% of adults deal with depression. 40% of Canadians are declaredly atheist. And amongst the 26% of Canadians who are Christian, less than 5% are by denominations we would consider to be biblically orthodox. We live in a time where the counsel of man is not godly, where the counsel people seek is not godly, where we see up to 20% of Canadians seeing a therapist, a secular psychologist, to deal with the problems of the day. This is the world we live in, where everything except for the Lord is set forth as the answer to your problems, as the counsel you need, and the help that man requires. And this is true not only in the secular society, but in the church itself. Many churches have gone the way of apostasy, have sought after worldly counsel, worldly psychology, worldly beliefs on every topic you can think of. The fact that the church, that our church is derived from originally, the reason we're called the free Presbyterian church is we're free from the foolishness of the Presbyterian church, which to this day <coughs> believes that there is two ways of marriage, that there can be a man and a woman, and a man and man, and that is sanctified and allowed by God. They ordain homosexual preachers. They allow all sorts of foolishness in their buildings because they've sought counsel of the world and not of God. <clears throat> this generation we live in today is the result of years and years of parents telling children, don't do that, that's the wrong thing, but not teaching them it's the wrong thing because God said otherwise. This is a nation that's abandoned God in the process and has left people seeking counsel of the world itself. And so today in this scripture, in Isaiah 31, I want to present to you the fact that there is indeed a black and white nature of trusting the Lord versus trusting man. This is true even in our own lives as Christians. If I'm seeking the counsel of the world for comfort, if I'm seeking the comfort of music, of movies, of pornography, whatever it is you seek comfort in, those things are incomparable and wicked compared to trusting the Lord. And there is no black and white. Having faith is not a matter of opinion. It's not something you should do. It's not something that we all struggle with. It is a necessity for the Christian walk that you have faith in God, for He is the answer to anxiety. He is the answer to every trouble, and there's none like Him. 
So to understand this passage we've just read, let's go back a moment to chapter 30 and look at some important points to consider in that passage. In chapter 30 of Isaiah, a couple important things to note. In verse 1, there's a warning against trusting Egypt. Isaiah 30 verse 1 says, Woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel, but not in me, and that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. We see clearly now, Israel's in a place where the Assyrians are coming to invade. And God's response to them is, Woe to you, my children, meaning those who associate with Israel, as there are many today who associate with the church. Woe to you if you take counsel, but not of him. And the cover with a covering, but not of his spirit. Is this not so many that we know today of our friends and family who are out there in, in churches that seem to be Christian, or people who claim to be Christians, yet their counsel seems to be not of God? When you ask them how you're doing or how are you dealing with the circumstance, you get every explanation, every reason, every justification <clears throat> for this. It's not a matter of, well, they can be doing better, or, oh, well, we've almost got them. It's a matter of sin upon sin, to not trust and seek after the counsel of the, of the Lord, which is found in his excellent word. Indeed, the Lord doubled down, doubles down on this in verse 12 through 14 of Isaiah 30, where it says, Because ye despise this word, and trust in oppression and perverseness, and stay thereon, Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you as a breach ready to fall. Swelling by all, whose breaking cometh suddenly at an instant. And he shall break it as the breaking of a potter's vessel that is broken in pieces, and he shall not spare. So there shall not be found in the bursting of it, assured to take fire from the hearth, or to take water withal out of the pit. That's Isaiah 30, verses 12 through 14. Where the Lord makes it very clear to despise his word, to seek counsel from others, results in what he describes as a breach ready to fall, a broken wall ready to collapse, whose breaking cometh at an instant. And again, we can all testify to this, who've walked with the Lord for any amount of time. When we sought after the counsel of the world and followed not in the Lord's ways, we found it to be, indeed, a broken wall ready to collapse. And there was a breaking of our own heart in those moments. So what is the, the answer to this? What's the remedy? I mean, the rest of the chapter discusses, in chapter 30, the deliverance of the people of God, that indeed God will come and fight Assyria, and explains all that in great glory, but he comes back again in chapter 31, verse 1, that same point, where he says, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help, and stay on horses, and trust in chariots. And here's the reason why they trust them. It says, Because they are many. And in horsemen, the reason being, because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. This is a black and white warning that in spite of the fact that God will deliver, you must still trust Him in the moment. You must not seek to add to the help of God or add to the, the answer of God, but simply to trust Him. You see, God had promised in the previous chapter He would deliver Israel from the Assyrians. Yet there were still some who wanted to get a little bit of extra help, get a bit of extra support from the Egyptians. And God warns them, do not trust in their chariots or their horses, because they're many. We see around us there's a multitude of people who have beliefs that are contrary to the scriptures, 
that seem to be a complement to the scriptures. You know, believe in God, yeah, but you've got to do your own thing too. You know, a lot of people say this expression where it's, uh, it says, God helps those who help themselves. That doesn't seem to me to be from scripture. Well, yes, we must work. We work in faith. It's the Lord who works, the Lord we trust. We trust in his strength. We don't work and do half the effort, and God does the rest. We know as Christians who believe his word that all in all, any good in our lives is from the Lord himself. The call is don't trust those who are many in numbers, so the many psychologists, philosophers, people on global news or CBC, CTV, who have all the opinions in the world. Don't trust them because they're many. Nor does it say we should trust them because they're strong. The secular leftist world has taken a hold over our country. And they are very strong. But does that mean they're to be sought after as counsel? Does it mean we're to go and commune with them and take on their beliefs and be conformed to the things of this world? The answer is clearly no. Indeed, the Bible tells us in the previous chapter in verse 7, it says, For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore have I cried concerning this, their strength, meaning Israel's strength, is to sit still. Indeed, it's not just that we shouldn't seek after the help of man, but, but it's when it comes to us a reason not to sit still. You see, a lot of times, especially with young people, that I see a lot in our church who want to get married. You know, a young man will say, I want to be married, I want to trust the Lord, I'm ready to wait for him to provide me a perfect wife, and I'll, I'll wait. And his strength, biblically, is to sit still and wait on God, because the Lord says... He who desires the wife desires the good thing. It says to us that he is the one who provides. He is our provider, and we're to be content therewith with what we have, for he'll never leave us nor forsake us. But to these young men, how often is the notion of, you know, there's a dating site online, there's Christian mingle, there's a way I can force my way around it. I can seek help and seek counsel besides what God has said, which is to wait, to be patient, to work on myself, and trust God's will. Instead, they seek after that help. And as the verse says, it help, that help is in vain and to no purpose. Their strength is to sit still. And I say that to any young person here, praying for marriage, praying for a spouse. Your strength is to sit still, wait upon the Lord and be faithful to Him. And He will provide and provide perfectly. The same is true to anybody in depression or anxiety, whose mind is to maybe go listen to it. A motivational speech. Maybe go listen to a Joel Osteen sermon because he's more pleasant than we are. You know, there may be so many things you want to seek after for a quick fix. But there is truth here that it is necessary to sit still in the Lord and to find your strength in Him. Why do we do that? Why do we turn away from Him? Very simply because we're impatient. We see an easy fix and we chase after it. We see a solution that seems to be more transparent, more evident than the one we have now, and therefore we jet towards it. But that's not the Lord's will. That's not what it is to be in His strength. We need to trust Him because He's faithful. His promises may take longer than your own will to be fulfilled, but they are the right way, the true way, and the one that leads to life. Indeed, we see here that this desire to seek after another counsel doesn't only result in animosity in our own lives, it results in animosity against God, even for those who sit here in church or who claim to be Christians. The Bible says in verse 2 of Isaiah 31, Isaiah 31 verse 2, Yet he, meaning the Lord, also is wise. 
and will bring evil and will not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the help of them that work iniquity. Let's stop right here. Normally we read this and think he's talking about the Assyrian army or the Egyptians, but he's not. He's speaking about the evildoers in the house of Israel. The evildoers in the church who sought counsel from other men, sought counsel away from the Lord. It says very clearly, he, the Lord, is also wise, meaning he's comparing them. Men may have their wisdom and strength, but the Lord is wise. And the Lord is wise and will bring evil, meaning he will bring to pass terror upon those who violate this commandment. He says he will not call back his words, meaning when he said there will be judgment for not obeying him and not seeking his counsel, he wasn't kidding. There's no back and forth about it. It says here, but he will arise against the house of the evildoers. I mean, not the whole church, but those who choose to seek after the counsel of men, whether it was at that time the lead elders in Judah, it was the men of God at that time who would have been in the highest positions, but anyone who would seek after the help of the wicked ones, those are the ones the Lord will arise against, and indeed also against the help of them that work iniquity. Do we understand this concept? This is a very difficult concept to understand. Because we so often think, if I seek after worldly counsel, if I make the mistake of going to the world, God will be merciful and kind, there's no issues, I'll come back to it. We depend and rely on the grace of God, not realizing that His heart is to be against you in that moment. You're doing sin against God. Were it not for the grace of God, there would be opposition from the Lord at every corner because of the sin you're doing. It's not a light thing to the Lord to seek after wicked counsel. It is a black and white thing. Either you trust Him or you trust others. Either His word is indeed all-sufficient or you seek after the counsel of the wicked. This is not to say don't seek the counsel of brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not to say don't seek the counsel of the godly, but counsel that's not rooted and grounded in the word of God is absolutely and completely useless. And that is what the word of God is saying. Indeed, it's difficult to accept because I think we don't want to understand that judgment may come upon us. Not judgment to condemnation, but judgment to chastening, to a Christian. And to false professors, it is judgment unto destruction. 1 Peter 4.17, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 says, For the time has come, the judgment must begin at the house of God. Meaning, when it comes down to it, the Lord is zealous for the holiness of His people. And when His people choose to go after other gods, it's not a light thing for Him. And there will be that kind of judgment within His own house. Speaking on this, in Ellicott's commentary, Ellicott says the following, We hear again the keynote of Isaiah's teaching, that the strength of a nation lays in its spiritual, not its material greatness. In seeking the Holy One of Israel by practicing holiness, without that condition, the alliance with Egypt would both be fatal to those that sought for help and those who gave it. Indeed, this is true for us as well. When we seek counsel anywhere outside of God's will, we're asking for trouble, not only on us, but on those we loop in with us. Let's not be like that, Christians. Let's not be like that today. But let us trust in God's word. So what then is the fate of those 
who in their flesh seek after others, other counsel other than God. We see this in verse 3 of Isaiah 31. Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses, flesh, and not spirit. When the Lord shall stretch out his hand, both he that helpeth shall fall, and he that is holpen shall fall down, and they shall fail together. Amen. We see a couple things made very clear here by the Lord. Firstly, that ungodly counsel are men and not God. I mean, they have no sovereign power. They have no authority. They're the creation of God and not God himself. Understand that. That any advice you may get from the secular world around you is merely the product of the thoughts of men warped and twisted by a fallen world. Yet the counsel of God is from God. It has the power of God behind it. It has the authority and will of God behind it. Which will you choose? To obey man-made creations backed by the power of our enemy? Or the will of God which is holy and acceptable? The Lord also tells us that their horses are flesh and not spirit. Meaning very simply that they are in opposition to what we are as believers. The Bible says in Galatians 5 verse 17, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other. Not only is it foolish to bring on unwise counsel into our lives, but it is a direct opposition to who we are in Christ. In Romans 7, when Paul speaks of who he is in Christ, and the battle between the flesh and spirit, he doesn't identify himself with his flesh. He says, I desire to do the will of God, meaning he himself is the spirit man. And the flesh is in opposition to his desires and his will. For we know in Christ we are a new creation. So why then do we bring in counsel that opposes who we are in Christ? It becomes an encumbrance to us, a body of death that makes us feel weighed down and helpless, when in reality we have the help of all helps. We have the God of all gods, the King of kings and Lord of lords, by our side, at our back, in everything that we do. The Bible tells us very clearly in this same verse, in verse 3, that both he that helpeth shall fall, he that is hoping shall fall down, they shall all fail together, meaning that there is judgment and there will be a destruction of the one who seeks after the counsel of man as a pattern of his life. And this is the destruction of what we call biblically an apostate. Now how does this, how does this look? The Lord shows this to us in verse 4, the destruction that is targeted of an apostate. In verse 4 of Isaiah 31, it says, For thus hath the Lord spoken unto me, like as the lion and the young lion roaring on his prey, when a multitude of shepherds is called forth against him, he will not be afraid of their voice, nor abase himself for the noise of them. So shall the Lord of hosts come down to fight for Mount Zion and for the hill thereof. Amen. Initially reading this out of context, this may be a very encouraging verse for many of us. So the Lord will come down and fight for Mount Zion. He won't be deterred when he comes after his prey. And then when you think about it, in the context of this chapter, it changes everything around. The Lord has a prey in the midst of Israel, and their shepherds coming after the Lord. What an odd thing to think. In this context, and we'll get to it in a second. Let's keep that in mind. 
The first thing we see at the beginning of the verse, it says, The Lord hath spoken unto me. This is a word to Isaiah. Previous to this, Isaiah didn't loop himself in, but he felt every need to bring himself into this verse as a comfort to his soul. That indeed the Lord has spoken to him a word of comfort in the midst of a world that he lived in full of false prophecy and foolishness. Indeed, the previous chapter tells us this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord, which say to the seers, See not. And to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits. This is the world Isaiah lived in. This was the foolishness, the false teaching that surrounded the people of God in the time of Isaiah, and yet the Lord spoke to him about his approach and his attitude towards these false teachers, those who avoided God, who avoided his counsel, who sought to seek after the Egyptians and others. And we see it in this verse beginning with the words, like as the lion and the young lion roaring on his prey. There is a power in the will of God and in his judgment. He's coming in to take out his prey. And who is that prey we see in the scripture? It is those who seek after false counsel, those who sought after the help of the Egyptians. The Lord has turned himself, arisen against them, and is coming down to fix the problem. It says also, interestingly, it says, when the multitude of shepherds is called forth against him, meaning the Lord is coming to destroy the wickedness in Israel, to get rid of those who trust in others other than God. But when he comes, there will be a defense from the people against the Lord. Isn't this the work of the flesh? Isn't this the work of the devil? It says they're called forth against him. Who called them forth? But the enemy himself. And it is true for many of us when we came to Christ. Wasn't there a calling forth of false teachers around us that came to tell us, no, you're wrong. Don't do that. Don't give your life to Christ. It's not worth it. There is opposition when you seek to give someone truth, when you seek to correct sin in someone's life. And we see here with the Lord seeking to cleanse Zion, that there came forth a multitude of shepherds to make noise, to make shouts, and to scare off the Lord from doing His will of removing the apostates from Israel. Isn't that something? But then what does it say here? It says, He will not be afraid of their voice, nor abase Himself for the noise of them. I mean, no matter what false teachers would say, no matter what wickedness will come about you in your life, the Lord will not be deterred from His purpose, ever. He will not allow anyone, any false teacher, any false prophet, any false teacher of this world to come against Him and have sway over His purpose and His will. The previous chapter in verse 11 says, Get you out of the way and turn aside out of the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease before us. This is the attitude of these men. Get out of the way. Turn out of the path. Cause the Holy One to cease from before us. That's what they want. They want to see God out of the picture. Because with the Lord in the picture, they have to deal with sin. They have to deal with the reality of their weakness, their fallibility, and the fact they need a Redeemer. 
And is this not the attitude of this country today? We said the stat, 40% of Canadians are atheists who've said, get you out of the way to every Christian, turn aside out of your path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. But we know what the Word of God says. The one who denies that there's a God is a fool. A fool. And they will have to come face to face with the Lord Himself. Now what's very interesting is, right after this, the Word of God says, So shall the Lord of hosts come down to fight for Mount Zion and for the hill thereof. To come down means to condescend. To come down from His glory, from His throne, to make war for us, on our behalf. He is coming to defend and to fight on Mount Zion. Now the interesting thing, our translation says for, but the word is equally translated on Mount Zion. And in the context means he's fighting in Jerusalem, in the midst of his people, in the place where his holy ones are. There is still yet a battle in the holy place of God. It even says at the end of this chapter, the Lord whose fire is in Zion, his furnace is in Jerusalem, meaning even in the house of God itself, there is going to be those who walk away from him, those who are false teachers, false prophets, false believers and apostates. And we see this very clearly with a very similar structure, actually, in Hebrews 12, verse 22. If we can all turn there to Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 22. Notice the incredibly similar structure to what we've just read. The Word of God reads in Hebrews 12, verse 22, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel, see that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, and those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably, with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. We see the warning here in black and white. The yes, we as Christians are come today to Mount Zion. We're in the presence in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. If you read in Revelation 21, this description of a beautiful kingdom where God indeed is our light and our all, we're with him now, in a sense, in Christ. <clears throat> and we see that we've come to the judge of all, the judge of all spirits of just men made perfect, and the mediator of the new covenant. And in verse 25, we see that there's a clear warning, refuse not him that speaketh. I mean, don't refuse his counsel. Don't refuse his will. That's exactly what they did in the time of Isaiah. They were in Mount Zion physically. 
and they refused his will, and they learned, as it says in verse 29, that our God is a consuming fire. And there will be destruction of the enemies who come after the Lord. We see a word of comfort now in verse 5 of Isaiah 31. We can go back there. We saw in verse 30 the Lord coming as a lion against those who are false. Those who claim they love the Lord. Those who show up in Mount Zion pretending to be the religious of the time. Who truly and honestly were liars. Who sought after counsel from the world. And here we see God's heart and his defense of his children in verse 5. Verse 5 reads, As birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending also, he will deliver it. And passing over, he will preserve it. The metaphor here is absolutely beautiful. Where it says, as birds flying, it more specifically means the way a mother bird flutters over her child. Meaning to be hovering above us in close proximity, waiting over us, watch and wait. It reminds us of Psalm 91 verse 4, where it says, He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust, his truth shall be thy shield and buckler. It tells us that he is watching from above. He is indeed greater than we are, and we're protected by him. And it shows us here that he will defend us. In the previous verse, he went to fight for Jerusalem, fight on Zion. And the word there means to go to war. But to us, who are his, who are his beloved children, it says he will defend, defend, and then deliver. I mean, he doesn't come to us with war in his heart. We see this in Isaiah 27, verse 2 through 4, where it says, In that day sing ye unto her a vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, do keep it. I will water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I keep it night and day. Fury is not in me. This is his heart towards us, his children. He views us as a beautiful vineyard of red wine, the finest grapes, the finest fruit that are his. He keeps us, he waters us every moment, lest any hurt us, and will keep it night and day. And he tells us, fury is not in me. I mean, unlike those who are apostate, who walked away, who sought other counsel, anyone who trusts the Lord will receive his kindness and mercy, will be built up by him, kept by him, night and day, lest anyone should hurt you. Can you believe this today? It also tells us right afterwards that uh, in uh, Romans 9.27, sorry, Isaiah, Isaiah says, in Romans 9.27, Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, though the number of children be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. And indeed, I want to encourage you that God has a remnant even this day, who he loves in this way, who will protect and keep day and night. Additionally, it says, passing over, he will preserve it. And this is a beautiful phrase that takes a bit of, of research to really understand the full depth of it. For the word passing over, you may think in the very simple analogy means to float over as a bird does, to pass over us. But the word actually is the exact same word used in the book of Exodus. The only other time it's used in scripture, which is when God passed over 
the sins of Israel in Egypt. Meaning that God in his mercy and love for us, as he hovers over his children, as a mother loving their child, he passes over our sins. It's a reminder and a foreshadowing of the forgetfulness that happens in Christ. That because Christ died for the sins of wicked men, we can have eternal life and God today will pass over us. He'll pass over the judgment that's rightly due unto us and will indeed preserve us in Christ. Lamentations 3 verse 23 says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. And Hebrews 2 verses 9 and 10 remind us, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him for, from who, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Because Jesus died, he's tasted death for every man who would come unto him. Every one of us who loves the Lord, we can know with confidence he watches over us as a mother watches over her child, as a mother bird over her children. He's passed over our sins and will indeed preserve us, defending us all day and all night. This is our God watching over us. So the question I'll leave with you then is what do, we, what do we do in this case? You know, we have two groups clearly delineated. We have those who have trusted the Lord to whom he is as a mother bird over her child, defending, preserving, passing over and protecting. And those who've turned against him and sought after other counsel, who've become to the Lord as prey to a lion. Which one are you today? Which one will you be? Let's say you're unsure today. You don't know which camp you're in. You're not sure. Are you on the Lord's side? Are you 50-50? Are you are you half in, half out? Read what it says in verse 6. Turn ye unto him from whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. This is the call to every sinner out there today who needs the Lord, or every Christian who's fallen back and backslidden, who's turned to the counsel of man. Turn ye unto him from whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. These wicked ones who sought other counsel, don't be like them. The Lord they've, dis they've found disgusting, the one they turned away from, the one that offended them, turn unto him instead and be delivered that he may be a bird unto you, not a lion. The wording, the one whom Israel has deeply revolted, this is reflected not only in the Old Testament, but indeed also today. We see in Matthew 23, verse 37, when the Lord speaks, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Is this you today? God's called you again and again and again. Come unto me. Let me be as a bird, as a mother hen to you, not as a lion. Or have you instead said, no, I won't. I won't have you. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease before me. Is that your heart today? And is it worth it? 
because you know for a fact now, based on the word of God, you are held accountable to his truth. If you've never heard it before, you've heard it today, that indeed you are accountable to God, for the soul that sins must surely die. And Christ died to save us from our sin. And indeed, this is again reflected in the scriptures where it says, a very familiar verse, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. In verse 8 of that same chapter, it says, In a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto they're also disappointed, or they also were appointed. Will you be those who are offended by Christ and walk away from him, or will you trust him today to be your deliverer, your protector, and your help? Because the truth is, there's counsel all around you. There are teachers all around us today who've spoken to you many things that are in conflict with what you've heard today. Whether you like it or not, the TV set you turn on, the phone that you check after the service, the people you meet at your job, all these things have come against the Lord. There are many, many shepherds come to say no to the will of God. Where will you stand? Where will you stand today? Will you find comfort and strength in knowing the Lord is our help and there is indeed strength in stillness? Thank you.